are still dealing with this problem as if we live in a healthy information ecosystem. And we don't. Our information ecosystem has completely broken down. And it means we are inhabiting a new era. And we get our information differently, we form our opinions differently, and we share our opinions differently. But we have not equipped ourselves with the skills to deal with that. Welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, do take a moment to tell your friends or give us a rating. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Ed Coper studied law at the University of New South Wales, the law school that was originally founded by his father, the legal academic Michael Coper. He then went on to work at GetUp and spent a decade in the United States, uh, helping progressive campaigns and increasingly combating disinformation. And it's disinformation that's at the heart of Ed's fabulous new book, Facts and Other Lies. Welcome to the Disinformation Age. Ed, welcome to the Good Life Podcast. Thank you very much for having me on. So we've always had the problem of disinformation, haven't we? You talk in the book about the disinformation around the smallpox vaccine. So why should we really be worried about it now? Well, I think that's a good place to start, is to think about uh, what hasn't changed. So a lot of the problem that we see in front of us, uh, the some of the elements are as old as human history. So one of them is the fact that we lie. Uh, and, uh, you know, obviously with no current company included, but political lies have also been uh, a very big part of our political fabric. And um, it's just a normal part of our human condition. Uh, there's also been disinformation. So you mentioned the example of the smallpox vaccine. Uh, the people who treated smallpox with variolation didn't welcome the advent of a vaccine and so they spread a disinformation campaign that because the smallpox vaccine was derived from cows, uh, that if you took it, you would grow cow horns. Uh, Makes sense to me. I mean, it very logically follows. And <laughs> not only that, but it was a very uh, effective one because it's a great story, like all the disinformation mm. we see today. And they spread it through pamphlets and secret societies. And a lot of these elements would be very familiar to people who, who follow modern conspiracy theories. So none of that was different. And even just down to the art of Russian interference and disinformation, that's, that was a normal part of the Cold War. Uh, but some of the fundamental things have changed that make our era one that is dominated by disinformation rather than it having it at the fringes. And the main things that changed were the disintegration of our traditional news media ecosystem, the way we used to get uh, curated facts and information that had some filter of truth on them. Uh, and at the same time, the, the arrival of the internet and social media. Uh, which dealt with the volume of information that they wanted to serve by deciding what pieces of information would be important to you. And so uh, all of these things have collided at a time where we are splintering into new political and tribal factions, 
uh, we're becoming hostile to outside thought, we're getting pushed into our own bubbles, and it is a recipe for disaster that we are living you know, currently with. You tell the story about Caleb Kane, a young man who went down a YouTube rabbit hole. Uh, give us a, a sense as to how that happened and what part YouTube algorithms, YouTube's algorithm played in it. Well, I guess the first thing to understand is that uh, be it large tech companies in Silicon Valley, uh, like all large companies, are focused on shareholder value and shareholder return. And in order to be providing that for your shareholders, you constantly have to be growing in some way. And the types of metrics that uh, the large uh, social media platforms are interested in growing is not just the number of users, which is also very important, but the amount of time that people spend using their platforms. So you take a platform like YouTube, for example, where they might have an interesting video, but the incentive for YouTube is to get you to watch the next video. Uh, in the early days, that was fairly straightforward. They were very unsophisticated about it, and they said, if you just uh, watched a, uh, a video about uh, how to milk a cow, then the next video will serve you is another video about how to milk a cow. Now, unfortunately, they realised that over time that people, after watching one cow milking video, were bored of cow milking. They didn't want to see that. They wanted to see something else. So they couldn't just serve them the same thing. So they decided to serve them things that were related, but slightly different. And so what you do over time is each video takes you in a, on a journey in a direction that YouTube has decided you'll be interested in. Now, Caleb Kane was a fascinating example that he handed over all of his uh, YouTube history to some great journalists from the New York Times and they are able to forensically examine how he started off watching very normal videos that were completely harmless and quite entertaining and innocuous. And video by video got led down this rabbit hole uh, into where he was watching quite harmful content and got quite radicalised himself. He was a person who, who became de-radicalised and that's why he was interested in working with the journalists. But it was a fascinating account of one individual's journey uh, thanks to a, a platform algorithm that can unintentionally lead you to very dark places. Yes, and what's striking to me is that YouTube weren't setting out to radicalise people, they were just setting out to make money. And it turned out that uh, this style of recommendation algorithm was the best, the best way of making money for them. That, that's right, and we have to be fair to the platforms as well. We can't have this conversation with talking about their role in, in the disinformation ecosystem, but they're not setting out to radicalise people they are just creating an environment that unintentionally favours radicalisation. So it's incumbent on us to realise that, it's incumbent on them to, to understand that and to take measures to, to help address it. But uh, it's, a, it's a machine learning process that is deciding what you will uh, be interested in. And unfortunately, the types of things that are interesting and engaging and uh, emotive and thought-provoking for a lot of people are these wacky conspiracy theories that have no grounding in facts and reality. So truth is not one of those inputs that the machine is gonna decide is interesting to you because as humans, that's not one of the inputs that, that is interesting or relevant to how we receive information. 
well, the Da Vinci Code has massively outsold any uh, biography of Leonardo da Vinci. And I guess that uh, speaks to the value of conspiracy theories in capturing our imaginations. Uh, you also talk about Facebook's change to its algorithm in 2017. Um, what did Facebook do and, and why did it matter? Well, if you remember back, if you had a Facebook account in the very early days, uh, you had a timeline. That's why it's called the timeline. It was literally uh, a chronological order of everything that you, uh, everything that your friends posted in the order that they posted it in. So there was no one else determining what you saw other than the timing of, of, of the posts. Now, as more and more people started posting more and more things on Facebook, that became very unwieldy and it wasn't a good experience for the users. Uh, you might be more interested in, you know, a close friend's content than in someone you randomly met and became Facebook friends with and don't really want to see their content. So Facebook has changed their algorithm a number of times. There was one particularly big change where they really thought that they knew what people would find most engaging and they were going to change the order in which you saw things to suppress the things that they didn't think you wanted to see and elevate the things that they did think you wanted to see. And unfortunately, when you are only fed information that you want to see, you get uh, uh, pushed into a bubble of that opinion. Right or wrong, true or false, it reinforces what you already think. Uh, and that's just not healthy. Uh, now, Facebook wasn't designed to feed us our, uh, our healthy information vegetables. You know, that's what the traditional media used to do. But Facebook and the other platforms have supplanted our traditional media. Uh, but we haven't yet transferred the obligations we gave traditional media in order to service healthy information. So that's the relevance of, of the algorithm uh, performing a role in our lives that it was not in, in designed to do. So how much of this is about our desire for stories versus our desire for, uh, for shock? Uh, you have that lovely Roger Ailes quote that if uh, two guys are standing on stage, one says he's got a solution to the Middle East peace crisis, uh, the other falls into the orchestra pit, uh, we will be much more inclined to uh, talk about the second than the first. Uh, is, it, is, is shock value being, being elevated or is it the arc of the story that matters? Look, Roger Ailes really got this. And for, for those of your listeners who don't know, Roger Ailes was really the brains behind Fox News, uh, Rupert Murdoch's uh, lieutenant. Uh, but he really had the idea and took it to, to Rupert Murdoch to find a home for uh, what, what we now call infotainment. Um, and, and the backdrop to that is uh, every other form of news media was losing money and Roger Ailes found a way to make news incredibly profitable. And it was to give it that shock value and it was to play into one side of politics versus the conventional uh, news advertising uh, approach, which was if you stick to the middle of politics, your advertisers will be more inclined to, to give you money. So Roger Ailes got exactly what you're talking about, that people do like uh, their emotive parts tickled, not their rational parts, not their nuanced and balanced parts. Uh, and that's the shock value. But the other part is the story, as you mentioned, and it is fundamentally important. One of the famous psychological experiments that uh, I mentioned in the book and, um, and many people refer back to to make this point was in the 1960s, researchers just showed a series of geometric shapes 
It was literally a triangle moving around a circle in a square. Nothing more, nothing less, black and white, nothing fancy. And they asked people to describe what they saw. And the types of answers they got with every single participant were as elaborate as, well, there's a man who's gone to meet a woman, but it's not his wife. And so he's running away from the other person and he opens the door and goes inside and he thinks of great horror. You know, they invented narratives for the geometric shapes that they saw. And the reason for that is that our brains must take information that we see and process it. And the way we do that is to turn it into stories. And so when people tell us stories, that is the easiest way for us to interpret information that we receive. Now, journalists get this. Uh, when they want to write about an issue, they will go and find a source who is personally affected by it and tell the, tell the broader issue through the lens of one person's stories. Um, good politicians get this too. They won't talk to you in terms of policy points, but in terms of the impact that that might have on an individual, an individual case. And there's a very good reason for that, and it's just how our brains work. So one of the reasons that disinformation has a leg up over information is we tend to tell this information through great stories and we tend to present information just by itself and that's just not what our brains want. I think of the people who are memory champions uh, a lot of the techniques for uh, memorizing things involve stories so uh, someone having a, a path through the house in which you discover certain objects as a way of uh, being able to uh, memorize the uh, order of a deck of cards uh, but uh, do you do you think this is got, what's caused this now to get out of control? Because you talk about a situation now in which two thirds almost of American Republicans believe that Donald Trump won the last election fair and square. Uh, you uh, very memorably point out uh, that there are more uh, Americans who believe in the QAnon conspiracy theory that uh, uh, Democrats are running a secret child sex trafficking ring. Uh, than there are left-handed Americans. Uh, so is it, is it the technologies that got, have gotten out of control or is it, is it also something about the way in which the po politics has shifted? Well, it's, it's all of these things colliding at the same time. So, uh, you know, I don't want to be too nostalgic about the bygone era, but one of the key differences was we all had a common frame of reference because there was a finite number of news sources that gave us our information. So we might disagree about it, we might disagree about what to do about it, but we were all getting our information from the same sources. Um, now it's possible for everyone to selectively choose their own information. And this is what's happened in America. So the those conditions are ripe for a political actor to come along and manipulate that to their advantage and this was the case with donald trump in america now whether he's a very stable genius as he says and he recognized this or whether the time suited him i think it's probably the latter but he blew a lot of our conventions about politics out of the water and the main one he did was that truth would matter to voters and he found that it was very effective to in fact uh, not tell the truth, but tell people his truth, force them into bubbles where they were cut off from outside reality, and then create a situation where they are now living in a parallel reality 
to other Americans who think that Joe Biden won the election. And we saw the violent consequences of that uh, in, on January 6th at the US Capitol. I think we were lucky to avoid a similar scenario in Canberra over the last few weeks, but we know that this is the end point of that fragmenting of reality. When people who have genuinely held conviction, passionate, intense conviction, that their reality is the right reality, and they are on a mission to spread that reality. It is subject to political manipulation, it is subject to foreign manipulation, it's also just subject to domestic manipulation from anyone who wants to, uh, to put their thumb on the scale of their own reality. That's what disinformation is. It's people coming along with different motives and enforcing different realities to uh, profit, to get power, to disrupt, you name it. One of the points you make in uh, Facts and Other Lies is that uh, early on in your time working in political campaigning, progressives dominated online, and now it's conservatives that dominate online. Uh, when do you date the, the turning point on that, and, and to what do you attribute it? Well, if we want to kind of look backwards uh, from today, who are the most engaged with politicians in Australia on social media? It was Craig Kelly until Facebook took, uh, took his keys away. Uh, it's Clive Palmer, Pauline Hanson, uh, Malcolm Roberts, Jared Rennick. What do all of those politicians have in common? Those are the ones who are spreading uh, disinformation as their platform and really playing into these fringe conspiracy theories. It's incredibly popular and it's incredibly engaging and the algorithms reward it. Uh, Donald Trump had 90% share of voice day after day on social media during the 2020 US election because those sorts of stories are favoured, that sort of hysteria, that sort of fear mongering, the tapping of the outrage and anger that really was Donald Trump's base, that is rewarded on social media and that wasn't always the case. The original promise of the internet was very utopian and for a while, it was largely true. Anyone could access information. Anyone could get connected to anyone else. And I was really lucky to work at the intersection of that as these technologies were really coming online uh, and working out how to use that for politics and social impact. Let's get you to email 10 friends about this important thing. Uh, why don't all, all 10 of you chip in $5 and now we've got $50 to spend on it, putting an ad in the paper? You know, these things were enhancing the robustness of our democracy because it allowed political participation at a grassroots level very effectively. Now, what changed in between these, these two points was the volume of information became so great on social media that it was no longer a level playing field. It was now determined by other factors in terms of, uh, of how the platforms would present new information. And it really uh, mirrored an evolution of our news moving online, our news moving onto social media, and the news incentive all of a sudden being to give people what they want as well. So the other politician I didn't mention who's also very engaged with on, on uh, social media is, is George Christensen. And he admitted as much when asked about, you know, why are you playing into these US election conspiracies as an Australian politician? And he said, I'm just giving the people what they want. And he was largely right. That is the most engaging and entertaining content out there in politics on the internet. 
and Sky News gets it. Sky News is dominating all others on YouTube because they talk about Donald Trump's theories and uh, opportunistic politicians get it. So this is the, these are the things we need to look out for. And in Australia, you point out that uh, QAnon is surprisingly popular. It's, uh, I think you say it's the fourth most... We're, we're, we're the country that is the four, has the fourth largest number of uh, QAnon adherents. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, QAnon has really evolved to become an umbrella conspiracy for a lot of conspiratorial thought. Uh, it started off as a very specific thing around uh, you know, Hillary Clinton and, and Democrats in the US. Uh, they had a belief that, uh, that Donald Trump was sent to arrest all of the Democrats and on a certain date in time that would happen. Uh, as that date in time passed and didn't happen, as Donald Trump uh, left the White House, uh, they had to reinterpret their, their beliefs. But guess what? Our brains don't really care about that either. They happily uh, maintained a fidelity to the QAnon conspiracies, even though it had not borne out in real life. And it morphed into uh, encompassing everything from Flat Earth to, uh, you know, to, to, to Dan Andrews also being like the Democrats in terms of, you know, that specific uh, conspiracy theory. So we need to understand QAnon through a lens of normal cognitive biases and processes. Uh, it is essentially an online scavenger hunt uh, that is very compelling. It connects people and you look for clues and you get rewarded uh, by your peers when you find these clues and find these patterns. Now, the other thing we have to know about QAnon is where it really thrives is where political elites take advantage of these realities as well. So we saw that in the US uh, when Donald Trump uh, would retweet QAnon uh, theories and QAnon personalities and that really legitimises it for his base and we have to be on the lookout uh, in Australia for people who do the same. It is a point of contention whether Scott Morrison's wording to the apology of, of institutional sexual assault survivors was based on QAnon language. We know that for sure QAnon people in Australia celebrated his language. They look for these clues and they saw in his language a wink and a nod to them that their beliefs were legitimised. So it is a loop between the elites and the grassroots and it's very dangerous and we have to have our radars pretty finely tuned for it. So if the problem is uh, false information, the solution must surely just be fact-checking, right? <laughs> uh, that, uh, that should work perfectly fine. And uh, you quote uh, Stefan Lewandowski, which uh, shows what happens when people are confronted by facts. Uh, a full 2% change their minds. Yes, if we're happy with correcting 2% of, of people who are mistaken, then that would be the approach to, to follow. Um, the, this is the default approach to disinformation, is a belief that showing information will cure it. Uh, and uh, as anyone who's studied the brain will tell you, there's no neuro neuroscientific basis for that. Uh, in fact, often it's counterproductive, especially when it's something that is core to someone's identity. So our brain uh, has a few uh, dominant features. Uh, one is that it's quite lazy, and uh, this is perfectly uh, normal because there's so much information in the world, we have to process it in a way that's efficient. And so that means that when we see information, then we don't want to think about it too much. We want to categorise it really quickly. So we do that by leaning into our pre-existing worldview and our own biases. Um, 
The second thing about our brains is that the fundamental overriding desire is to fit in with our peers. And so when anything challenges our identity and our values and our association with our peers, then we become very hostile to that and we work overtime to disregard it or to contort it into what we already think. So a lot of the disinformation out there is related to our identities, our political identities and beliefs. Uh, people who have dealt with the arrival of a very unexpected pandemic that has disrupted our lives now have very core identity values about what the pandemic is. Where do they stand on vaccines and masks and mandates? This is central to their identity. So when something triggers that part, that's when disinformation is very effective and that's when our cognitive biases go into overdrive. So that's, that's just disinformation. It's all of those things. It really leans into our cognitive biases. It's not like one person is perfectly rational and another person is perfectly irrational. We are all have parts of us that are rational and irrational. And disinformation brings out our irrational parts and we try to put, it, uh, put the genie back in the bottle by appealing to our rational parts, but they're not activated. They're dormant during disinformation. We've got to, we've got to be uh, aware of how our brains work if we ever have any hope of addressing disinformation. One of my favourite uh, political science papers is the 2006 paper by Christopher Aitchen and Larry Bartels titled It Feels Like We're Thinking, uh, in which they argue that this process is actually a really fundamental challenge to the way in which political scientists and economists have typically thought about elections, about you know, facts come in, people make a, make a rational decision. And uh, increasingly, some of the research that's really troubling too uh, is that those who are worst at this are those who are the most educated. Uh, you'd think that education is somehow correlated with rationality, but it seems like all education uh, leads you to do uh, is to be able to go out there and find more facts that bolster your existing biases. Yes, that's absolutely right, and it's a, it's a point that is, is not well understood or practised in, in politics because we operate under this assumption that I am a rational voter and I will assess your policies based on what is best for me uh, by all rational measures and then I will come to a conclusion and vote that way. And that's just not how it works. Uh, in reality, I have my gut intuition, my gut feeling about you. It's not based on your policy platform, but I will look at your policy platform and make sure that I contort it to fit my gut instinct and then feel very rational and reward myself with a hit of dopamine if I, if I think I've done a good job of that. So you're absolutely right. One, uh, in terms of uh, there being no correlation between our cognitive uh, abilities and years of education and intellect in, in terms of who does this. We all do it, but those of us who are really good at forming arguments and are really rational and coherent uh, speakers, uh, we're we, we go through exactly the same thought process as anyone else, but we're much better at then rationalising it and convincing other people that our beliefs are rational because we can give a coherent explanation for them. But the, the best uh, analogy for this, uh, that, that I think it's Jonathan Haidt who, who, who said it, is uh, your brain, we think our brain is the judge in a criminal trial, but our brain is the lawyer. <laughs> That's, we're presenting our mm. arguments you know, to fit our, uh, whatever outcome we want. We're not the judge who's, who's assessing both sides of the argument and, and coming up with a fair determination. 
So do you worry about this in your own life? Um, do you try and um, follow people you disagree with politically on Twitter? Just how do you open yourself to an information stream that allows you to change your mind? Yeah, I think there's, it's a really great question. I think there's, there's several phases in this process. Um, and the first one is understanding. So we need to be uh, aware that this is a problem of human psychology, uh, not a problem of uh, specific political manipulation. Now, that comes later. And the more we can understand that we are all following uh, cognitive biases that have very good evolutionary reasons that have been developed over, over millennia, and we are never going to change the way our brains work. You know, we can't, we're on a fool's errand if we think we can just solve this with, with a suite of rational information uh, presented to people. So we need to understand that applies to us, you know, not just others, not just the, the, the edge cases we see on the news when it spills over into the streets. And then the second thing, after getting that understanding, you, you do have to look inward and say, how does this relate to my information diet, my political views, my social views, uh, and, and how I have formed these views and, and what I do to broadcast these views. And then the third thing we have to do is think about how that relates to others and not judge them in the same way that we are used to judging people when their conclusion from what they see in the world is something we think is completely irrational. So let's look at the example of the people who've been out on the streets of Canberra over the last few weeks. Uh, I fundamentally disagree with their worldview. I fundally, fundamentally reach a different conclusion from the information I've seen about the pandemic, about our government processes and about our institutions. And I fundamentally disagree with them on the solutions to the, to the problems that they see in society. But by gaining an understanding of how they got there, my role is not to mock them or criticise them, but to think about solutions to bring them back to a healthy place in society, to reintegrate them into uh, a shared communal space where we can have productive conversations and, and come up with consensus-driven solutions. And how do you do that? Well, I might just disagree with the conclusions they reach, but I probably share some of the concerns that led them there. Uh, they're expressing a desire for uh, a healthy democracy, but they go about it in a very different way. They're expressing a concern over people's health and public health, but they go about it in a very different way than, than I would you know, express my concern over public health. So we tend to focus on the differences when instead we should be focusing on the similarities and using those similarities as a starting point. Because what we don't want is a situation that America has got itself into where the chasms are so deep in society and the divisions are so deep in society, there is no clear pathway for America out of them without further division and violence and things to get a lot worse before they get better. And their politics is, has largely broken down. Their polit conventional political processes have largely broken down to a point where it's very difficult for them to respond to a pandemic. To respond to, to respond to the problems of infrastructure, to respond to the, the, the problems of inequality that plague America. Now we're heading in that direction and we need to arrest it because otherwise we'll end up in the same destination. So you talk very specifically about ways of combating disinformation and uh, one of the principles you advocate is a thing called, you call pre-bunking. 
What's pre-bunking? Well, pre-bunking uh, is, is what is opposed to debunking. So as we just discussed, debunking doesn't work. Uh, there's some ways you can do debunking that are more effective than others, but you are really, really uh, pushing shit uphill, if I may swear on your podcast. So the, the debunking is, uh, arrives at a time that is way too late. We've got to get ahead of it. Now, how do you do that? There's several elements to pre-bunking. The first is studies have shown that if you warn people about disinformation in general and talk to them about the tactics in general and the understandings of the same types of issues we've talked about today, then they are actually inoculated against it in the same way you can vaccinate against a, a virus. So uh, an example of one study that showed this was, which was uh, Stefan Lewandowski, again, who you, who you mentioned, a really leading academic in this area. Uh, they presented people information about how tobacco companies manipulated the science around uh, smoking causing cancer. Uh, and they said, here's the types of tricks they used, here's how they misrepresented information, here's how they tried to pull the wool over people's eyes. Uh, there you go. Now, those people went away and then subsequently they were presented with climate change disinformation. And they were, the people who'd been explained about the tobacco disinformation were much less susceptible to the climate change disinformation because they recognised the same patterns that they had already learnt about. They saw that in, in the climate change disinformation what they had learnt in the tobacco disinformation of science being misrepresented uh, and people having the wool pulled over their eyes in the same way. And so we can do this by just talking about disinformation. Your listeners to this podcast are now better armed against disinformation for having thought about the issues than that we're talking about. Now, the second form of pre-bunking is more specific. It's getting reality to someone's brain before uh, the fake reality arrives. So when I mentioned earlier that we, we're not gonna change our cognitive biases, we have to lean into them in a helpful way. Now, one of our cognitive biases is we will favour whatever we hear first. Once a fact takes up residence in our brain, it is very hard to dislodge. And this is why it's so hard to debunk. But what if our fact gets there first? Then the disinformation will have a hard time dislodging the, the fact that already made it. Uh, now, there's better ways to package our facts that will make them stickier in our brains, and that is making them stories and making them compelling. Uh, and it's not telling the negation of a piece of disinformation, it's telling what are we for? You know, uh, what is the positive alternative reality? And get, there to, get that to someone's brain first, then it's much harder for disinformation to be effective. And there's a third form of pre-bunking, which is highlighting that the people they are likely to hear disinformation from are untrustworthy. So in Australia, we know the main uh, spokespeople for the disinformation age. Some of the politicians that are getting a lot of the share of voice on, on, uh, on social media. Uh, if we can warn people that they are untrustworthy, then their disinformation will be less effective. If we can warn them that Pete Evans, uh, as good as a celebrity uh, chef judge he was, that does not mean that he necessarily has a working medical knowledge of COVID treatments, then people will be uh, less likely to, to believe his, his alternate remedies when they hear them. So 
These are all things that need to be done before the disinformation hits. But unfortunately, we tend to just deal with it in a reactive sense after it's already arrived. And sometimes in ways that are completely counterproductive. I mean, one of the examples that I love of, uh, from your book is uh, the ads that the Biden campaign ran saying that uh, Joe Biden will not defund the police. Uh, and you have a, a beautiful little caption underneath one of the ads saying, I wasn't worried about this until I saw this ad. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, that, you know, our instincts, uh, especially in politics, if someone attacks you, you, you want to defend yourself. Mm. And, and uh, you know, I don't know if you've ever walked into this trap, but that is what our overriding desire is to say. That's not true. Uh, but all we do is bring attention to it. So, you know, uh, if I was to tell your listeners that uh, I am not left-handed, all they are wondering now is whether I'm left-handed. Right? <laughs> now, for the record, my dominant hand is my right hand. But if your listeners first heard that I was left-handed, then they're going to worry that. And I've now said it three times. They've mm. heard three times that I'm left-handed. And that's going to be the thing that they walk away with this conversation, especially if it's not the fact that I'm left-handed, but, you know, that I have cow horns growing because I got vaccinated against smallpox. That's much stickier than, uh, than the reality. So, uh, so negating things, you know, the, the best book about this is George Lakoff. It's called Don't Think of an Elephant, right? Now everyone is thinking of an elephant. So going to that issue of repetition of facts, you talk about the fact sandwich. Uh, why is the fact sandwich effective? Well, this is what I meant when there are effective ways to debunk and there are less effective ways to debunk. Sometimes we're not going to be able to pre-bunk. Sometimes uh, there is information out there that it's very, very important for society to rein it in and to correct it. Uh, now, when you do this, They've been able to show studies that if you are to remove a fact from someone's brain or a falsehood rather from someone's brain, you need to surround it by facts to shove in the cavity that you're removing the falsehood has created. Otherwise, the falsehood will just come back. So uh, a fact sandwich is the best way to remember this, that if you ever have to repeat a piece of disinformation, you must precede it and follow it with the fact. And more than that, you also have to explain the context in which people are hearing the disinformation. So you say the fact first, you warn someone they're about to hear a piece of disinformation, you explain the disinformation in a way that maybe gives the motive of the tobacco companies when, you, when you're not just leaving it out there without context, and then you repeat the fact, preferably several times. So an example might be uh, smoking causes cancer. That is a fact. You might hear some information out there to the contrary, like the fact that uh, there is no established link between it. The reason you're hearing this is because scientists are paid by tobacco companies uh, to bury the link between uh, smoking and cancer. But the facts are clear, smoking causes cancer. Smoking causes cancer. So you wrap it mm. in that fact. And, and the, the psychology behind that is that we are very, uh, very, we're good at remembering things, but terrible about remembering the context we heard them in. So if you debunk someone, they will report on the surface that they have been corrected, and then they will go away and two days later, they will forget that they heard the myth in the context of a correction, and they will only remember the myth. 
So that's what you're trying to avoid, and that's what the fact sandwich helps doing by surrounding it all the time with context and facts. So we've all been in the situation where you're at a family barbecue and uh, Uncle Thomas uh, comes out with some, uh, some outrage, and the, the instinct is to uh, uh, make a, a feisty attack on Uncle Thomas in front of the whole family. But you talk instead about the importance of going private. What is what is going private in a social media context and a personal context, and, and why does it work better? Ed? This is really really important, and this is one of the things I hope people take away from the book if they if they remember nothing else. It's that in public, the imperative is to be loud and right, and in private, in a one-on-one -on -one conversation, the imperative is to find common ground and consensus. We approach private one-on-one -on -one conversations. Uh, very differently and as a consequence we engage different parts of our brain. So the goal that we're talking about when dealing with disinformation largely is how to, uh, how to have conversations where people's mental defences aren't immediately triggered. And that's not going to happen on social media and it's not going to happen at your barbecue in front of all of Uncle Thomas's peers. So that's the way we normally address disinformation, either in the real world or online. We try to have fights with people in a public forum. That might be a common thread on something that they've posted on Facebook, or it might be a public dressing down of them in front of people whose opinions they care about. Now, we know that when that happens, our mental defences are triggered, especially when it's something to do with our values and our identity, which disinformation invariably is. In a private conversation, think about the difference between uh, any online abuse you've seen or you've suffered. Now, you're a public figure. I'm sure you get this all the time. I get it all the time since the book's been published because people disagree with some of the, uh, my criticism of some of the crazy theories out there and they, they find me on social media and they say very horrible things to me. I don't think they would say those things to me face to face. And I don't think the people who uh, are horrible to you online would say those things to you face to face. We're in a different ecosystem. Social media favours all the horrible parts of our personality. Uh, whereas a face-to-face -face conversation, we lead with the nice parts of our, uh, uh, of our personality. And as a consequence, we get to a, a, a better place at the end of it. Are there other strategies for combating disinformation that you think are important for people to know about? Well, we've got to approach this on a society-wide level as well as an individual level. So some of the individual solutions we've talked about, but it needs to be much broader than that. We need to realise the fact that we are still dealing with this problem as if we live in a healthy information ecosystem. And we don't. Our information ecosystem has completely broken down. And it means we are inhabiting a new era. And we get our information differently, we form our opinions differently and we share our opinions differently. But we have not equipped ourselves with the skills to deal with that. So one of the best things we could do on a society-wide level in the long term is to make digital, digital media literacy part of our education curriculum. That'll really help the next generation. Won't help our generation, but we need to teach ourselves the same skills. We need to know how our digital uh, ecosystems work uh, how information uh, travels around them, and so we are more uh, proactive and better digital citizens, and we uh, we are cognizant of how of our own role within that ecosystem. 
So when I was a student of history, I got taught the skills to assess a historical source for bias. Uh, where is it coming from? Uh, what, what, uh, what was the audience? What is the motive of the writer? Uh, you know, what is the context? That really helped me assess historical sources uh, for, their, for their value. And those skills stayed with me in adulthood. We need to do the same. We need to teach people the skills of, of, of how to inhabit this new era that we live in, which is largely digital and largely favours disinformation. Now, that's a role for our education curriculum, but there is also a public policy role to play there. Uh, we need to restore some of the things that we've lost that gave us healthy information like local and regional news, uh, like incentives for investigative journalism and fact-based journalism, like uh, public broadcasters that uh, do give us a healthy information diet. So there are all sorts of different uh, policy solutions that we need to think about as well as our own individual behaviour. So if I can sum up your, uh, your book in uh, one final, uh, f final notion. Uh, it is important to engage in pre-bunking uh, to uh, get, get out ahead of disinformation. You will sometimes hear people say that fact-checking can be a solution. They're saying this because they haven't read Ed Coper's book. By reading Ed Coper's book, you'll come to understand that fact sandwiches, uh, going private and pre-bunking are the ways to combating disinformation. How'd I do? I think that's uh, one lesson that everyone needs to learn is to go to your local independent bookstore and buy this book. Ed Coper, uh, thanks so much for taking, uh, taking the time to share your wisdom on the Good Life podcast today. Thank you very much for having me on and thank you for being such a great part in the fight against disinformation. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation. If you enjoyed this conversation, you might like past episodes with Jonathan Haidt and Julia Gillard. If you enjoyed the episode, please take a moment to tell a friend or to mention it on social media. It really helps others find the podcast. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.